Hi, everyone, and welcome to Horse Mysteries. My name is David Dedrick. My name is Lisa Williamson. And Lisa Williamson is our resident horse ex- expert. I'm our resident horse interested in her. <laughs> and, um, dear, what's the what's what would you say is sort of the central idea of this show? This is our it's first. It's about horses. It's about horses. Okay. It's about mysteries. Okay. It's about mysteries related to horses. Okay, or you really have summed up our th- actual name of the show, so. <laughs> but it's about. Well, some of them are going to be some, like. It's sort of so. It's some of it's true crime. Yeah, some of it's true some crime. Some of it's going to be medical mysteries. Medical mysteries, yeah, just anything that's kind of a mystery or sort of a questionable thing. I should say questionable thing, but something, <laughs> yeah, about horses that you kind of will sure. go, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I never thought of that, or oh, that's interesting how that happened. So yeah. Cool. All right. And like I say, this is our first episode. Um, for kind of our first episode. Kind of our first episode. For <laughs> the first the first mystery in Horse Mysteries is... <laughs> where did the first episode go? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is our first... Yeah, this is... We were joking earlier, I said, you know, th- uh, three times a charm, but actually this is our fourth attempt to uh, to do this show. So we're really, you know, by this point we should be experts. But I have to confess that despite the, idea, the fact that we wanted to do, or that Lisa wanted to do a true crime show around horses we have never listened to a true crime podcast so we really have no idea what the format is for them how you do one how you speak about such things yeah might have been a good idea we're just sort of stumbling blindly into this but i like to think of us as a breath of fresh air into the stagnant world of true crime (laughs) i don't even know i've never heard of it (laughs) i've never listened to a podcast so stagnant (laughs) (laughs) mr judgmental over here so, dear, what is the title of our first mystery? You tell me. What is the well, title? Well, okay, you've, you've titled it in French and made yourself yeah. uncomfortable with pronouncing <laughs> it, uh, which I am no better at. But let's, let's say it's sans et sauf, which I would interpret as safe and sound. Yes, French for safe and sound. We'll start with the setting, and that is Saturday, June 25th, 1977. All right. Okay. Pretty good year. Pretty good year, yeah. Yeah, very interesting year. Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> we're, now we're, taking, we're stealing each of those lines from our first attempt at this. Yeah, Star Wars was that year. Yeah. You mentioned in another, another show that we did that, this, that 1977 is a particularly beloved year for you. So. Yeah, it was a good horse show year for me. So it was probably the first year I achieved a lot of success in, yeah. in horses at horse shows at bigger shows so um and i kind of knew that was coming and my mom had wanted to go to the uk that year to visit relatives and whatnot and i was like no 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 so it actually (laughs) is something i have regretted ever since because 1977 musically would have been a great year in the uk but as i pointed out earlier you probably would have just gone there and been completely unaware of, unless yeah. you were buying music magazines mm-hmm. while you were there, you know, buying the latest issue of NME. Most of your relatives would not have been fans of the of punk rock, and would not have been listening to it too much. <laughs> no. You know, most of them still would have been, you know, you could go to God there to get to hear the Eagles mm-hmm. played on their stereo system or whatever, but probably not the latest single by the adverts or yeah. something. Although, yeah. although Gary Gilmore's Eyes was performed by the adverts on on uh, the uh, that show whatever the top of the pops top of the pops yeah so maybe okay yeah well you made me feel a little bit better for missing <laughs> missing england in 1977 but what was happening more elsewhere? importantly you got to have Go lots to, of success yeah, 
That's right. You know. Lots of success. Started me on my way in my horseshoe career. So yeah. that was good. Yeah. What, are, what is the location of this particular incident, though? And that is a place called Paris. Mm. Texas? No, no, not Paris, Texas. Oh. Not Paris, France. But Paris, Kentucky. Ah. Okay. The city's so popular. They named a city in Europe after it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, Paris, Kentucky is kind of a unique place in that it's got the one of the rarest ecosystems in the world, which is called a woodland pasture ecosystem. Okay. And What's that exactly, dear? What is that? It is where they had an inland sea at one point. And so all the shellfish basically um, died and their calcium shells formed into a limestone layer, which created a situation where the soil is very rich in, in mm-hmm. calcium. So this was not a... This was a naturally occurring Yeah, yeah, naturally area, occurring. Not, to, yeah. not a dam or diked region. No, so it happened like half a billion years ago. Okay. So it's okay. been there for a long time. But um, Kentucky has this. There's a place in Ontario that has this. Mm. And then also in England, uh, Newmarket, where the oh, really? yeah, racehorse capital of the world yeah. or the, the origin of the racehorse industry, thoroughbred racehorse industry was Newmarket. And so it has that as well. So I guess that, I guess there is like a lot of limestone in, in that part of England. Mm-hmm. You think about those where they have the horses carved in the hillside. Yeah. I think that's limestone that's been revealed is, by yeah. the carving. Yeah. 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 That's that's over on the other side, though. But um, yeah, Newmarket certainly has that sort of ecosystem as well. And so, yeah, it's known for producing great horses. But so, yeah, this is Paris, Kentucky. So it has that. Um, so specifically, though, Paris, Kentucky is also the home of Claiborne Farms. Okay. So as someone that grew up reading the Blood Horse magazine through the 70s, because my parents had racehorses. Okay, so that's a true crime magazine. (laughs) You would think so, yeah. That should have been the name of our podcast. (laughs) So, yeah, Blood Horse is the the magazine for anyone involved in the racehorse industry. And again, I'm talking about thoroughbred racehorse, not standard. Why is it called Blood Horse magazine? Well, because thoroughbreds are known as blood horses. And so, yeah, sometimes people who are into like jumpers or whatever say, you know, they'll usually have warm bloods, but they'll say, I'm going to breed some blood into that this horse so they're meaning they're adding thoroughbred into it so okay. you know it's it's faster it's a little bit sharper because they want a smarter horse well smarter faster sharper a little bit more athletic yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah not, not to put down warm bloods but they are from a sometimes called dumb bloods yeah so yeah well because they're from a farming stock they're like a mm-hmm. they're like a draft horse yeah. basically or kind of like a middle-sized draft horse mm-hmm. which are bred for their docile creatures and so you want a horse that's a bit more right peppy Mm -hmm. so you need to put add some blood horse too yeah because there's uh, cold bloods which are you know like maybe things like ponies or whatever or some of the breeds that are yeah very slow moving Mm -hmm. and very non-reactive but just keep plodding along and then yeah yeah, on the opposite end of the spectrum we have the thoroughbred which is basically just bred to run sure but if you're farming with a horse it's really big like in the old days when people farmed with horses you would not want a horse that was no. <laughs> peppy and apt to, to lo- you know, lose yeah. its cool and jump around. And mm-hmm. it, when you have it all, you know, attached to your plow, you don't want that taking no. off, you know, across you, the field. You want to plow fast, but not that fast. <laughs> yeah. 
Claiborne Farms yeah. is a place that I was well aware of from reading Blood Horse magazine because they always used to have a big two-page spread okay. in Blood Horse advertising all the stallions mm-hmm. that were standing there. It's a 6,000-acre thoroughbred breeding facility in Kentucky. 6,000 acres. 6,000, yeah. So that's so, so huge. So half of Kentucky is... Uh... <laughs> Not quite, but um, yeah, like Camel it's... Valley Park area. It sounds yeah. so big, right? Like 6,000 acres yeah. for, a, for a breeding One farm. farm. One farm, one farm. For a breeding farm, yeah. not just for like, like you could think that for like a corn mm-hmm. or, or some kind of like industrial level farming thing, but for a wow, yeah. So it must so I guess you don't know like what per- percentage of that is buildings and what percentage of that is pasture. I do not, but I think most of it's pasture because the um, yeah Kentucky is what you know roll, rolling farmland, mm-hmm. and so there's not a lot of uh, forested area. I mean, mm-hmm. there's little clumps of forest here and there, but sure. it's not like around here. Yeah. Um, and yeah, most of it's arable land, and so they do have a lot of buildings simply because they do have a lot of horses. Yeah. But yeah, most of it would have been pastures, large pastures, fields. I mean, you can look online and see pictures of this, these places and they're, yeah, just massive fields and big, often the kind of stereotypical Kentucky thoroughbred farm is the rolling hills with the white fences over it. Yeah, Although yeah. I think there's been a transition to the black fencing simply because it stands up for longer. Okay. But yeah, even like putting in that amount of fencing is yeah, <laughs> crazy and yeah. maintaining it. Yeah, painting yeah. it, etc. Sounds quite pretty, though. Yeah, it's very, very pretty. Not that I've been there, but I've seen pictures. Anyway, <laughs> as I said, Claiborne Farm, very well-known, been around, established farm, started up in 1910. Okay. So there's this guy called Arthur B. Hancock, um, and it's been in the family ever since, so still in the family. So, wow. I mean, yeah, most of these places, they you know, change hands after a while, but yeah, the Claiborne Farms still never changed Hancocks. <laughs> That's right. Arthur B. Hancock, his son Bull, took over mm-hmm. and he basically improved American breeding stock. So he was importing horses like Nazrula and Prince Aquilo from Europe. So he okay. introduced So these are high high quality yes, thoroughbreds. Yeah. So like my old horse, you can look in his lineage and you will see these horses wow. in his lineage. So he changed thoroughbreds in north america your, your horse was from to be, well his mum was a french bred horse okay i was gonna th- i thought he had some na- like de- native dancer or whatever yeah he was kind of... native talent was his dad and his mum had come from kentucky so okay. yeah she okay. was kentucky and then she was by a french stallion wow. so yeah there is a lot of you know good breeding going on sure so hancock was also the first of the working horsemen to be elected to the jockey club. So usually it was, you know, kind of the snooty rich guys who (laughs) were very hands off. Um, And this was a guy who, you know, he was out there cleaning stalls. He was out there like he knew these horses well. Mm -hmm. He wasn't a guy who had gone to fancy schools or anything like that. He was born on a farm and he was raised on a farm. But yeah, yeah, it was a big, fancy, successful farm. So, so successful that they produced 10 Kentucky Derby winners. Wow. Yeah. And then six of the 13 Triple Crown winners were sired by Claiborne Stallions. So amazing. Yeah. And then... Now, now those horses, though, were not owned by them. They just... They bred them and sold them to people who then Sometimes bred them and sold them. Sometimes... um, yeah, it could be that they 
retained ownership of them. Okay. I don't really know. Okay. Um, I'm just curious, like how yeah. how that would work. Like, yeah, usually uh, most of these places get their money from sending their yearlings to the yearling sales. Mm-hmm. So that's that's uh, the Keeneland yearling sales. That's yeah. usually what happens. I mean, they still are happy to claim responsibility yes. for the yeah. <laughs> for and then there's I don't know if there was at that time I know around here when my parents had uh, racehorses they would have what's called breeders bonuses so if you bred a horse even though you sold it when it was a year old mm-hmm. if it won you got some money back for yes. that so part of the purse went back to the breeder so even if you don't own this horse you can still make money off the horse even if it's long gone from mm-hmm. your farm so well it makes sense to yeah. incentivize the, mm-hmm. the industry yeah so, yeah, at the time of the incident, so again, this was 1977, now it was third generation okay. owner or okay. manager, rather. So it was... Owned by a spoiled son who... who I don't know if he was spoiled. in a skyscraper in New York. And... No, no, he was uh, called Seth Hancock, and okay. he's 27 years old. So okay, well, he, yeah, yeah. Very young to be running, you know, yeah. a big, big place. But, yeah. What's his dad been, doing by this point? I don't know. I don't know what his dad was doing. So what it, what is actually happening? Okay, so here we go. incident. So 4 p.m. Saturday, June 25th, 1977, a Claiborne watchman counted nine mares in the south field near barn number four. So this was 500 feet away from Seth's house and it was the correct number of horses for that field. Okay. So nine nine horses should be in that field. Yeah, nine horses should be in that field. So four hours later at 8 p.m. Yeah. Same day. So a Claiborne watchman counted eight mares in the field, okay. but he made the mistake of assuming that one was maybe just over the hill and he couldn't see it okay. or behind yeah, a clump sure. of trees and he couldn't see it. And so he carried on his merry way. Uh-oh. Yep. So then the next morning, Sunday, June 26th, a count was done again. And then they realized that there were still only eight horses in the field. And at that point, someone did go, uh-oh, mm-hmm. something's happened. Yeah. It is not unheard of for horses to go missing, right? They'll jump over fences. They'll go through fences. Sure, these are thoroughbreds we're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, they're big athletic horses and it's very easy for them to, yeah, jump over a fence. So, not not unheard of. Yeah. And that was the initial thought. They thought maybe the mare had, yeah, jumped over, gone through a fence, was in another paddock or field. I just, on want, the I just want to point out, we could blame this watchman, but it's a 6,000 acre farm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of ground to cover. So they sent people out looking for this horse, and one of the workers found a breach in the fence. Okay. And the unfortunate thing is that even though it's a 6,000-acre farm, this horse's field was on a roadside. Okay. So it was, yeah, a road called Route 637, which actually intersected the farm. So, Yeah. yeah, road cut through the middle of the farm. You don't get your kicks on Route 637. That's right. Yeah. So it's a two-lane throughway between Paris and Winchester. But yeah, it intersected Claiborne, and he found that it looked like the fence had been cut open, and then someone had repaired the cut. Okay, so So it obviously wasn't just like a crash-through fence that a horse had No, so yeah, a horse hadn't crashed through it, or a car hadn't crashed through it, and then backed up and driven away Mm -hmm. because someone had had taken pains to repair this fence sure 
So then they have to figure out again. So it's a six thousand acre farm, and they got lots of horses, hundreds of horses there. So yeah, like, yeah. who is this horse that's missing? They <laughs> sure. know eight go in this field and nine go in this field, but like, okay, which horse normally would go in this field, and which of these ones is missing? So that was the next kind of thing they had to establish. And so what they figured out very quickly was it was not one of their own horses. Unfortunately, it was a border. Okay. Um. So it was a horse that had been sent there from Canada. Oh. Canada. Oh. Have you heard of that place? I feel really familiar with it. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, she had come a couple months earlier, and she had been bred recently to one of the Claiborne Stallions, so okay. that's why she was there, to be bred. All right. By 9 o'clock on that day, Sunday, June 26, 1977, the Claiborne Chief of Security, a man called Eugene Flora, phoned the Kentucky State Police to say, we have a missing horse. Yeah. Okay. So, one of our horses is missing. Yes. So, who was this horse? So, of all these horses, why, who was this horse? Okay, the victim. The victim. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. The missing horse was identified as a horse called Fanfreluche. 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 Okay. All right. And so, uh, she was a bay mare by Northern Dancer, uh, who was a famous Canadian stallion. Sure. Um, she had been bred and was owned by wealthy Canadian stockbroker and industrialist Jean-Louis Levesque. Mm. Mm-hmm. So he was a relative of... A significant of, name in, in Quebec. Yes. Uh, yeah. So he was a relative of the Canadian separatist politician René Levesque. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. René Levesque. Um, <laughs> so... Fan Falouche was known as Fanny, okay. and I might call her Fran Falouche because in my mind when I was young, that's the word I saw. And in my brain, I have always thought of this horse as being called Fran Falouche ever since. But Fan Falouche, uh, she had been named after a character in a children's TV show. Yes. Yeah. It was a- and yeah, so it was a CBC children's television show. A Sebe um, Say. Yeah. So Levesque insisted on French names for all his horses. For people who aren't familiar with Canada, we have two official languages. One is English, obviously, and one is French and spoken in Quebec. And this is where this horse was from, hence uh, the, the the French names. Mm-hmm. So who was this horse again? So Fanny, she was at this time an established broodmare. She, this was not. She wasn't her- a racehorse. She had been a racehorse, race but horse. her current profession was as a broodmare. <laughs> sure. She had, at this point, five foals already on the ground. Okay. So most of them were of racing age. That particular year, she had not had a foal. So that was her. Basically, what you do with horses that are broodmares is you breed them every year, mm-hmm. and you try and get a foal out of them the next year, and you just keep going like that. Sure. So gestation period for a horse is 11 months. So you can continue to breed and breed and breed and breed and breed and get a foal every year or almost every year. But for whatever reason, she had what's called slip the foal the year before. So she oh. had been bred, and she lost it. You had um, one job, Fanny. Yeah, yeah, she couldn't do it. So, but she was barren, and that was maybe, maybe made her a little bit more vulnerable. She probably would have been in a different field if she had had a foal at foot. But mm. yeah, she was in the field with the mares that didn't have foals. Yeah, as a racehorse. Is so that you, why she was? I guess you don't know if that was why she was sent to this farm, or that if she'd. Well, it was probably a good opportunity to send her to the farm because if she lived in Ontario to travel that long way out to Kentucky. 
without a foal, that would have been the best year to send her. If okay. you've got a little baby, yeah. sending a horse with a baby or trying to send her while she's in foal so that she can sit around for a couple months, wait for the foal to be born, then have her bred with a foal at foot and then send the two mom and baby back. You know, that's a lot of... Yeah, maneuvering and whatnot. Yeah. So maybe better to choose a year when she's not being um, shipped long distances or when she doesn't have a baby at foot to ship her long distance. So, yeah. yeah, she so she currently was making her living as a broodmare. But prior to that, um, she had been um, a great racehorse. So she had 11 wins between the ages of two and three. And thoroughbreds, mm -hmm. you race very young. She had been the winner of the Sovereign Award, which was basically um, Canada's Horse of the Year. Okay. So, yeah, she wasn't just a good racehorse. She was a great racehorse. So, as a broodmare, her babies had also done extremely well. And her first foal was a horse called L'Angelie. And he had been twice the Canadian Horse of the Year. So, she was... Canadian champion. Her first foal was two-time Canadian champion. He had 15 wins in 30 starts and he had won over half a million dollars. And that was in the 70s. Yeah. You know, you think half a million dollars then compared to half a million dollars now. It's a lot of money. So the next four in, foals... In those days, you could have bought a house with it. Oh, easily. Yeah. So the next four foals were all by different sires and they had each made on average over $200,000. So yeah, she had... Yeah, great success as a broodmare. Her 1975 filly went on to become a three-time Sovereign Award winner and, again, Canadian Racehorse Hall of Famer. So this was basically a, a family of racehorse royalty yeah. as far as Canada was concerned sure. anyway. Um, Where we're really big on royalty. Yeah. And so to make it yeah even more impressive was that the Fan for Luce at the time that she disappeared, she was two months pregnant. Oh. So she had been sent to Claiborne Farms, had been bred, and they were just waiting for her to settle because she had lost the foal the previous sure, year. Sure. And so the horse that she had been bred to was Secretariat. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Secretariat, you know, he so had she won. Was, she was bound to have a lousy foal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Secretariat obviously had won the Triple Crown. Yes. Um, and I think... He was the first horse in about 25 years to have done that. So that, he, that was done to great fanfare, and I believe that was 1973. And can I just point it. out that Secretariat is your favorite racehorse? Yes, he is my favorite racehorse, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so he broke records all over the place. Um, yeah. But yeah, just an absolutely fantastic athlete. So that's who she had been sent there to be bred to. So mm. in full to Secretariat, she was Canadian champion, had produced Canadian champions, bred to a triple crown winner. So, you know, she was carrying this baby that, yeah, was, yeah, infinitely valuable. Mm -hmm. So much anticipated. And so this was actually the second time she had been bred to Secretariat because she had a 1976 foal by Secretariat as well. It was a yearling at the time of the theft. Is that right? 1976, 77. Must have been 75. Anyway, yeah, she had a foal that was a yearling that was also by Secretariat. Mm. And he went on to be the second best sire of all the foals that Secretariat yeah. had that so, went on to be so stallions. Just to point out, famously, Secretariat was not a great producer of racehorses. Mm-hmm. But was a great producer of sires of great racehorses. Yes, yeah. Oh, and a great producer of... Um, 
broodmare. He was a great broodmare sire. Okay. Because, yeah, it kind of skipped generations with him. Sure. So, yeah, he was a great broodmare sire. But he did have some. He had a few horses that were good race horses. But, yeah, like you said, none of them are really great race, race horses. Um, yeah. You would think with Secretary, you're like, oh, this would be like. Yeah. He's going to take you know. over the world. Yeah. But apparently what he had as a ho- race horse, like what he had as an athlete wasn't necessarily purely physical, but there was an, an element of personality that made him a great race horse. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly that. Or, you know, maybe it was just a recessive trait. But yeah, it seemed mm-hmm. to skip generations. And so, yeah, he became a very great um broodmare sire in particular but of all his foals that went on to be sires um yeah this one that was a full brother went on to be his second best in yeah. amount of earnings etc i just say that because of his famous ability of uh, to stretch his neck out so far mm-hmm. much like he just seemed to have this will to like lengthen himself as he came to the end yeah of the race. well it's... he did that but he also could use his neck like a piston so when you look at pictures of him running or videos of him running like yeah. he he uses his neck in such a way that it actually powers him even hmm. more yeah. like his his legs obviously are one thing he had a very long stride he had a very big heart so he was like turbocharged but he could also utilize his neck to yeah make him go even faster and so if you watch the movie secretariat as soon as they had the horse that was being secretary run i'm like oh so bad (laughs) (laughs) did not look anything like the way secretariat ran like he was the ultimate athlete so um, pretty hard to find a replacement for that exactly (laughs) you don't have a secretariat born all the time so he was the michael jordan of the horse world Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so what happened next so they've now determined that this horse is gone and they know who the horse is and they're like oh no What do we do now? <laughs> so, yeah. Sure. And, and like you said before, like there's a 27-year-old practically kid yeah. running this big place. Yeah, and yeah. probably the best potential horse they've ever had on the property has now just disappeared <laughs> in a puff of smoke. So, yes, yes. yeah. What do they do? Well, what they do is they phone the Kentucky State Police mm-hmm. right away yeah. and report that this horse has been st- missing anyways sure. you know they, they sure. can't necessarily say stolen but so certainly it's missing and they suspect obviously the best thing to do call andy griffith down yeah, to uh, yeah. take care of it so it is a uh, police detective called yeah. robert duffy who catches the file um, picture don knots <laughs> i don't know if it was that bad um <laughs> so right away kentucky state police issue a bulletin that morning yeah. and so from their frankfurt headquarters and so what it says you say is frankfurt headquarters frankfurt kentucky that's a place <laughs> So is it Fort or Fort? Fort. Fort. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just, I just love the idea that this whole region is named after European cities. Yeah, just, I know. Yeah. We immediately went to Geneva, Kentucky, where we. <laughs> so what? What the uh, bulletin said was theft by unlawful taking. That was the title. Sure. And it says on Saturday, <clears throat> September twenty fifth, a third. Seems like a redundant mm-hmm. thing to say, but yeah. okay. Yeah, I know. A. Uh, <laughs> On Saturday, June 25th, a thoroughbred mare in full, two yeah. months in brackets, yeah. was stolen from Paris, Bourbon County, Kentucky, mare valued at $500,000. Hmm. Description of mare, 10 years old, bay color, tattoo inside upper lip, W12997, white star center forehead, left and rear, re- left and right rear ankles have white stockings, black spots on both rear coronets, and 16 hands high, was wearing brown leather halter. Anyone having information, contact Kentucky State Police. Hmm. 
So the lip tattoo, um, in case you don't know, any horse that's been to the racetrack, any thoroughbred that's been to the racetrack will have a lip tattoo because every horse has to be identified sure. uh, so that, yeah, you know have it's substitutions not, and... Yeah, no substitutions, no ringers, etc. Yeah. Okay. So they continued uh, looking around and one thing they found right by where the fence had been breached was they found a garbage can that was not filled with, but had the remains of a bunch of alfalfa in okay. it. Okay. Okay. So it was half filled with alfalfa, discarded by where the fence was breached. Um, again, they found, so it was not, you, you picture board fences in Kentucky, but this particular area was a wire mesh fence. Okay. Um, and so... Well, 6,000 acres to fence. Yeah. So yeah. Some so, of it's fancy, some of it's just purely functional. Yeah. So they were able to determine that um, someone had gone in with bolt cutters okay. and cut it and then kind of fastened it up with wire or whatever after the fact. They were able to discover a set of hoof prints coming from that area. Mm-hmm. And the hoof prints then led up the road to Seth Hansen's driveway. So they assumed it was a centaur that mm-hmm. did this crime. Yeah. So, yeah, Seth, the driveway of Seth Hansen, Seth Hancock's, rather, driveway. Um, and so the field that the mares were in was only about 500 feet from his house, but the driveway was sort of concealed by a bunch of trees. So if you were in his house looking out, then you couldn't see the driveway. Okay. They set up road checks all throughout Kentucky and also in neighboring states. So this was a very big operation. They were quite serious it about it. A big horse hunt. Mm-hmm. And then they did interviews with all the Claiborne staff and then all the neighbors of the Claiborne farm area. Mm-hmm. So what one neighbor reported was that a silver LTD had been parked by a field off of Route 627 for the preceding three days. What is an LTD? Like, uh, it's a Ford vehicle. Okay. Yeah. There was an ad. What can you do in an LTD2? You'll never know till you try. I was singing that <laughs> once and my mom got mad at me. I was like, what? It's an ad. Anyway. <laughs> uh, sorry. So is it a car? Yeah, it was a car. It was okay. kind of like a, kind of like a uh, Cadillac or a Lincoln. Oh, I see. It was like I a see. luxury vehicle. Sure, sure. Yeah. So. Sure. Anyway, so there was this LTD parked in a field. And then another neighbor confirmed that at 4.40 on the Saturday, he had seen a green pickup truck with an empty aluminum horse trailer on Route 627 near where the fence was breached. So he was certain of the time because he kept checking his watch because someone was due to show up at his house and they were late. Okay. Um, Then a farmhand reported seeing the same vehicle on the other side of Claiborne at 5 p.m. the same day. Hmm. So the police then talked to the security at Claiborne Farm. So again, you know, it's a 6,000 acre farm and it's got a road cutting right through the middle of it. Uh, they had 325 broodmares on the property. So just broodmares alone. Wow. Many of them would have foals at foot. Mm-hmm. So at least 100, probably in excess of 100 foals. There were also weanlings and yearlings on the property. And then they had 24 stallions as well. So like hundreds and hundreds of horses, at least 500 horses on this property. Um, The stallions alone were valued at $50 million. One of the most secretariat. Yes, I know. (laughs) Yeah, he was was a big... He was the $49 million. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So 140 people worked at Claiborne. Like, it's a big business here. Sure, sure. They had a security detail of eight people. So... um, The property had four auxiliary gates that were all locked every night. 
and they had a sentry posted at the main entrance. Um, Claiborne took a lot of pains to make sure that no one knew because of the value of the horses, which horse was which, just to prevent exactly this sort of thing. And of course, it didn't work anyway. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they took care not to post anything anywhere about which horse was in which field, etc. Um, there were no maps of the property, so you couldn't see the layout of the property. <laughs> uh, the only means of identifying the horses was they all had little tags attached to their halters. And so you had to get within six feet of them even to read that. <laughs> so you wouldn't know uh, who a horse was. Visitors were only allowed to the stallion barn only with escorts no one was allowed to go and see the broodmares at all so it wasn't like they had people wandering around sure. all the time well the broodmares were naked mm -hmm. so they didn't want a bunch of people staring at them yeah okay so next day monday so by 9 30 a.m monday june 27th they hadn't made any headway and so the fbi are called in so, yeah, this is, again, big business. So it's an <laughs> FBI agent called Bob Bird, and he's assigned to assist Duffy. So between the two of them, Duffy had spent 10 years as a state trooper, okay. and he had only dealt with one missing horse case, and it was a $300 Appaloosa. <laughs> um, and then Bird, who was originally a farm boy, he had yeah. once solved a case of stolen cattle. Okay. But he knew nothing about the thoroughbred racehorse industry. Sure. So perfect. these are the two people. Perfect perfect team up here. That's right. So, but together they had 30 years of investigative experience behind them. Seems so, more important. Seems yeah, more important. that is probably more important. Okay. So they looked at all the evidence. Um, and they came up with this scenario, which is basically that the thieves had surveyed the area for three days. They had trained the horses in the field adjoining Route 637 to come to the fence by using alfalfa kind of to lure them. Yeah. Um, and then they think that perhaps that allowed the kidnappers to kind of get the names of the horses and figure out which one they were going to choose. They weren't 100% sure about that. Uh, yeah, I would say it almost sounds like a random grab. Yeah, because yeah they thought it could have been a random <clears throat> thing. They didn't really know, but... The yeah. fact that they chose the most expensive, probably, mare on the property. Yeah, it's possible that this person knew something about the horse. Sure. But yeah, they can, at that point, they had no idea. Yeah. Okay, so they also were able to determine that um, the kidnappers had backed their trailer into Hancock's driveway. The driveway, again, was obscured by trees. And then they loaded the horses and drove off. Um, the horse. They Yeah, drove the horse away. Okay. Yep. And so there was a couple of things that aided the kidnappers. So at that time of the year, because it was summertime, the mares were out in the field 24-7. They weren't being brought into the barn at sure. night. Sure. So they were able to do this when it was kind of coming up to nightfall, um, a little bit darker. Fewer people on the property. Um, Seth Hancock was off the property at the time playing golf. So although it kind of sounded suspicious at some point with him, you know, he was with other people playing a round of golf off the property. Sure. Um, and you so possibly have hired someone. Yeah, possibly, possibly. It was brought up by the owners that Fanfreluche was difficult to load and difficult to work around. Um, so they did also surmise that what they're dealing with is someone that is actually very good with horses or very familiar with horses. Mm. Anyways, obviously they have a horse trailer, yeah. but um, yeah, it wouldn't have been an easy horse to get into the trailer. I see. To them. Hmm. Okay. So then the 
uh, search goes even broader. And so they go beyond the USA to several foreign countries as far as getting the word out anyways. So it was heard that there was a shipment of horses had been flown from Cincinnati to France. Okay. And so authorities met the plane when it landed in France and all the horses were checked out. But unfortunately, none of them matched the description mm. of the missing mare. Um, the case was very heavily publicized in the media. So Sports Illustrated called Fan Verluche the most famous missing female since Patty Hearst. <laughs> oh, horse. <laughs> Dave's like, what? A no, horse. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because it's, it's, um, it's such a different age when, when horses were still probably, you know, page two of the sports, mm -hmm. the sports section. You yes. Know, yeah. Yeah. And, and pretty hot on the heels of Secretariat and his big win. He was very much in people's minds. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, yeah, the fact that this was a Secretariat baby. Yeah. So, and then of course the owners. So what are the owners? Where are they? And all of this? Well, they were upset people. <laughs> um, partly because their horse is missing and partly because this very expensive horse has not been insured for theft. I see. Uh, yeah, so that was that was a factor in there being upset. So the owner's son, Pierre, uh, was actually a syndicate member in the Secretariat franchise. So I see. he was a part owner or a syndicate owner anyways. Um, and he's the guy that was saying, this is not an easy job. She wouldn't have been easy to deal with. She didn't load, etc." Yeah, yeah. Um, on the other hand, the Claiborne farm manager, I think they were just trying to placate everyone <laughs> because the manager of the farm, John Sosby, he said, you know what, the mare is actually really friendly. Like, you're making her out to be a different horse than she is. So there was a little bit of a conflict between the farm manager and... Um, the owners. Yeah, the owners. So as you can expect. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so even... Worse, maybe, is the fact that um, Fanfreluche had slipped full the previous year and that yeah. it happened one other time. And so she had to be on a regular regimen of a particular medication. I see. Um, and so this is called Depo Provera. Okay. And it just helped to prevent the loss of a foal. So uh, the fact that, yeah, this unborn foal was predicted to be worth, you know, six figures easily very mm -hmm. very much so um then you know it's a very valuable foal and so if this mare is not going to get the medication and she could lose the foal yeah. then yeah. it's not just the mare five hundred thousand dollars disappearing but potentially, also, potentially this... <laughs> the foal yeah so yeah. and so there's a time there's a time factor here mm -hmm. as well so. yeah okay so claiborne farms you know to um you know move things along hopefully and maybe placate the owners a little bit they help they put up a reward so I their see. reward is twenty five thousand dollars okay. because of the intense media coverage uh, and the reward together all of a sudden all these false leads start coming in yeah people start <laughs> phoning and yeah. saying all sorts of things uh one california psychic was claiming that the horse would be found in a blue barn with a manure pile behind it oh, oh yeah <laughs> well that seems kind of, I mean, I guess blue. Yeah. A blue barn is unusual. But manure pile manure by a barn? <laughs> what? Where are you going to find that? Where did the manure come from? <laughs> there were many theories. So theory number one, again, was the one that the horse just got loose. So that was the first 
thought that the horse got loose on her own, but that was immediately proven incorrect yeah. when they found the dismantled and um, hastily put together fence. So yes. it was the FBI who were the ones that yeah determined it was definitely a theft. And the garbage can full of alfalfa, mm-hmm. yeah. which immediately pointed the finger at Oscar the Grouch. That's right. Um, so then the next one was they thought it might have been extortion. There is a guy called, I don't know if you know, Nelson Bunker Hunt. He was very. He was also a super rich guy, very much into sounds like it race horses. <laughs> yeah, he. I remember he very famously tried to corner the silver market. He and his brother. Oh yeah, back yeah. in the day. That's right. Um, yeah, and so um, he had recently, just very recently, had a horse stolen in Italy, I and see. so uh, ransom was demanded, and the authorities ended up finding the horse very underweight and very unhealthy at an abattoir. And it was like moments before it was going to be done away with. So the horse was rescued. The fact that in the 70s, like J. Paul Getty. Yeah, his well. And then Patty Hearst. People were being kidnapped. Extortion was, you know, much more common, I I think. And so, yeah, it was it was starting up with horses as well. Uh, In Canada, two standard bred racehorses had been stolen and a ransom was demanded. Hmm. Um, But the horses ended up being recovered without any money being stolen. And then in 1975, two colts were stolen after they'd gone through the Keeneland yearling sale. So someone had paid money for them. And then when they went to pick up their horses, someone else had taken them. Wow. Yeah. Horse thefts, especially theft of expensive horses, mm-hmm. wasn't unheard of at that time. But in the case of Fanfreluche, no ransom demands were ever made. Okay. So... They were waiting all the time, yeah, yeah. thinking, yeah, someone's going to, you know, send that a seems like the most them. obvious reason yes. to steal a horse. Yeah. Yeah. Especially be... a horse like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there were other theories that came up later. Once it came clear that there was not going to be any ransom, uh, other theories came up and the next one was terrorism. Okay. So this was a political move. Sure. Um, Some horses drove a horse trailer over it. <laughs> to rescue their one of their own. Yeah. Uh, the Horse so, Liberation Army. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, as we said earlier, Levesque was related to the politician and separatist, Canadian separatist, René Levesque. Yeah. Um, so because of that, they felt it could have been a political act. However, the two were not close. Like, they weren't friendly. Yeah. They were only distantly related, sure. even though they sh- shared the same last name. Yeah. And probably even more importantly, they were kind of polar opposites politically. I was going to say, if one is an industrialist, he's probably very pro-federal. Yes, yeah, very pro-federal, <laughs> strong supporter of bilingualism, which is totally the opposite of his cousin, the politician. So, Just so people know, in Quebec at that time, I think it's sort of fallen a little bit out of favor in Quebec. At that time, there was a big movement to separate Quebec from the rest of Canada mm-hmm. that was very popular amongst some French-speaking part of Quebec, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there had been there had been a terrorist group, the FLA, the FLQ or FLQ, I'm sorry, yeah. the Fédération Libération Québécois, yeah, who um, had kidnapped and killed a British diplomat, I think, uh, and caused a great deal of ruckus. There wasn't very many of them, but it doesn't take very many to cause 
cause issues. Mm-hmm. And so there was a big crackdown yeah. at that time. Yeah. And- now, the other thing that had happened with Levac, which made them think it could have been politically motivated, was that the FLQ had actually bombed uh, Jean-Louis Levac's house at okay. one time. So in 1970, on the date of the Queen's Plate, the Queen's Plate being the big race, horse race in Canada, sure. kind of our equivalent to the Kentucky Derby. Sure. Um, the FLQ had gone to his house and bombed it. Mm-hmm. So on the date of the 1970 Queen's Plate. And so the FBI kind of made the connection that the date that this foal was kidnapped was actually the date of the 1977 Queen's Plate. So they're like, oh, they had attacked Levesque's house, 1970 Queen's Plate. Here we are seven years later. His horse gets uh, kidnapped mm. on the date of the 1977 Queen's Plate. Well, so, yeah. I mean, that uh, mm-hmm. isn't too far-fetched, really. No, no. So they, I think the FLQ was quite, by that point, was yeah. pretty much a, a, a dead duck. But yeah, they still thought it could have had mm-hmm. yeah those mm-hmm. sort of political things. So they did investigate that and ended up coming up with nothing, ultimately. Mm-hmm. So then there was another theory that was touted by New York Times sports columnist Red Smith. And his big thing was that this foal had been kidnapped so that it would be a, put in as a substitute or a ringer <laughs> for, you know, kind of a, a lesser mare and a lesser stallion's offspring. Mm. So you could have this, you know, full by secretariat out of fan for louche. And in the meantime, you had old Betsy, you know, who had been <laughs> bred to you know, spur dog or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so you just take their full and switch the two of them or, you know, get rid of the, their full altogether and say this, this full was out of these two or by these two poorly bred horses. And then you take it to the races and sure. yeah, it would work for a while, maybe until... But what about the lip tattoo? Well, because it's you're registering that foal as being by those, you know... Oh, so you wouldn't have to... To ha- you wouldn't have to reveal the broodmare. Well, you would reveal the broodmare. Like, like the way it would work is you already have a mare. Yeah. And you're just going to, and she had been covered by some other stallion. Mm-hmm. And then in the meantime, you've kidnapped Fan for Louche. You keep her in the back 40. She has a foal. Yeah. And then when you go to register the foal, you don't say this foal is by Fan for Louche. You say it's out I of see. old Betsy. I see. And so then <laughs> it gets registered yeah. as, you know, Dusty or whatever you're going to call him. Mm-hmm. And old Dusty goes to the track and burns the track up. And no one's expecting that because he's out of this junker mare and no stallion. No because so few of Secretariat's <laughs> offspring <laughs> did that anyway. So. <laughs> but yeah, what a no shocker one, that would have been. Yeah, no one knows he's by Secretariat. Sure, it was yeah. the idea everyone is expecting this um yeah, yeah, you know that yeah. it would be a great racehorse so sure. yeah it's a theory it is a theory it's yeah. not a terrible theory no actually. no okay so that that was you know this red smith who was a very popular columnist he got a lot of press on this so yes folks that was the day when there was a horse columnist in the mm-hmm. newspaper yeah that was popular yeah so another theory that they came up with was that it was just an act of revenge against Claiborne Farm. Maybe a unhappy mm. client, an unhappy former employee. You know, you know, there's lots of people that can be unhappy in the horse world, unfortunately. Sure. So um, someone trying to get the revenge back on Claiborne Farms. So they did investigate that. And then another one was that it could have just been a frat prank. Okay. Yeah, so like yeah. I don't know what these kids would the do. The UBC with, engineers showed yeah. up, and then the horses <laughs> dangling underneath the bridge. Yeah, so yeah, you never know. You never know. Yeah. And then finally, there was another theory that they 
they felt that it could have been a prank, which is in quotation marks. You know what? Delta hosts. Oh, yeah. They yeah. stole it. Yeah. Put it in the dean's office. That's right. Um, but, yeah, this other one was a theory that the, it was a prank intended to shake up the racing industry. So, I don't know how it would shake up the racing industry, but whatever. That was another theory that was investigated. <laughs> People just stuff out, yeah. Yeah. So, how did this story resolve? Well, let me just say, these theories are getting more and more desperate yes yeah because yeah basically nothing was happening like the horse disappeared they looked at a bunch of stuff there was like nothing it was Mm -hmm. like tumbleweeds were blowing through (laughs) uh yeah this paris kentucky yeah which had no tumbleweeds that's right yeah yeah what happened next so basically fast forward to december 1977 all right so the the full or sorry the mayor originally disappeared june June 1977. So same year, same year. But yeah, yeah, now we're at the end of the year. She's been basically missing for six months. Pregnant. pregnant. And a mysterious phone call is made to the FBI. Okay. So they get a tip from someone who it is later shown to be one of their people that gives tips. What is the term for that? An informant. An informant. Yeah, there we go. Speaking into the telephone through a, <laughs> through a handkerchief. That's right. Yeah, so it's a, a known informant of the FBI who yeah. has some information, um, and he tells them to check a particular uh, backwoods farm in Kentucky. Like, how does huh. he know this? They don't know. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. So, immediately, the authorities go to this place, which so is 17 in... 17 police cars roll up to this house with their <laughs> yeah. lights flashing. And it's in Tompkinsville, Kentucky, which okay. is nowhere near Paris, Kentucky. Yeah. In fact... And also not even named after a European city. I know. So weird. Yeah. So, 175 miles from Paris, Kentucky. So, it's not like the horse could have walked there. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. they go to this farm. It's on the Tennessee border. Okay. And it's a three-acre farm. Just a little, like I said, little backwoods place. Yeah. December 8th, 1977, they show up yeah there's a barn they go into the barn there's four horses in the barn <laughs> and they very quickly are able to use the tattoo to confirm that the one horse is found for Lush alive and well okay. so that is good sure um they immediately ship the horse back to claiborne yeah she's checked out by a vet the vet determines she has been well treated well cared for and she is still carrying a live foal wow yeah so Good news. Now the attention turns to the owner of the farm. <laughs> who is this guy who has been harboring this missing, yeah. very expensive horse? Sure. So turns out the guy's name is Larry McPherson. All right. And he is a local government uh, employee. So he actually works across the border for the Tennessee Valley Authority. Okay. And he lives there with his wife and his two sons who are, as I said, they had four horses in the barn. So yeah. his wife and sons enjoy riding horses. Yeah. Um, and so the story that they give to the authorities is that one day a neighbor calls them up to say that there is a horse on the road in front of their house. Okay. And so they go out and they basically rescue this horse off the road and they put it in their barn in a paddock Um just to get it off the road so it's not going to get hit sure. by a car. And the police are able to confirm this with the neighbor. Yeah. Yes, that did indeed happen. And they called the, did they call the police to let them know that they had a... Yeah, so the next thing that McPherson does is he phones um, the local authorities yeah. 
to tell them that he has found this loose horse. Sure. Is anyone missing a horse yeah. in the neighborhood? And they're like, no, there's no missing horse <laughs> around right. this area. Once again, picture Don Knotts <laughs> taking this phone call. And I think that's that's probably more the Don Knotts would be in the Tompkinsville <laughs> area because no one seems aware that there's any horse missing. Obviously, no one in this area owns a newspaper, reads a newspaper. <laughs> I live in Canada. I was hearing about this case. Um, well, I it was, was a Canadian horse. Well, yeah, it was partly because of the Canadian horse, but I think it was more the Secretariat thing. But, yeah, you know, yeah. I was a teenager in Canada, and I knew more about this case than people that lived in the same state, obviously, because they had no idea that this horse that they had in their backyard for six months was this very expensive horse. Yeah. Um, so it turns out that because no one showed up, like they just kept her and they kept feeding her, waiting for the owner to show up because they figured someone's got to come by and pick up this horse. Like they had reported her to the authorities. The authorities knew there was this loose horse. And in the meantime, they called her Brandy and they used her as a saddle <laughs> horse. And so the mom and the kids would go out riding and yeah, old Brandy out on the trails. She's a fine girl. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, with the other three horses on the property, so it was a pony, a palomino, and a quarter horse, total value of those horses, 600 bucks. And then old Brandy, <laughs> half a million dollars. But, uh, yeah. So so they didn't realize she was pregnant? No, they just thought she was fat. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a fat horse is different than a pregnant horse, but okay. Yeah. I think, when was she due? I can't remember. Yeah, she, she ended up having the foal in February. So what? she, yeah, so February 16th, yeah, she ended up having a healthy bay colt. So, yeah, she gave birth to this young horse. I wonder if they put her back on the, the drugs or this kind of like, well, apparently she's doing fine. Maybe yeah. we shouldn't yeah, mess with this. Hard, hard to say. <laughs> so one of the things that Jean-Louis Levesque did is he ran a contest to name this foal. Okay. And so, again, one of his criteria for naming his horses, it had to be a French name. Okay. And so, yeah, it wasn't he who came up with the name, but it was as a result of a contest. I see. Ran. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of cool. And so, Sofaisan was the name that, or sorry, Sofaisan was the name that came up, which mm -hmm. is, of course, yeah. Safe and Sound, which is a right. good, good description. Yeah, awesome. I love it. Well, that's good. That's a nice ending it to, is, to the it story. It is, it is. So, yeah, but... What is a mystery? Like, how did this happen? Yeah. So they get another telephone tip. So yeah, we know now horse is safe and sound. Mare has her foal. That's all good. Mm -hmm. Everyone's put to bed, mm -hmm. but we still don't know yeah. how and why this happened. Why, so why, why did this person change their mind halfway through? Mm -hmm. this? Yeah. So it turns out that, uh, yeah, they get, again, it wasn't through the police investigation that they were able to determine what happened, but yeah. it was a telephone tip. Um, and it led the police to a guy called Mike. McCandless. So he was 30 years old at okay. the time, a former U.S. Marine, and then had gone to Vietnam and then come home and basically become kind of a drifter. Okay. And as many people did back in those days, if you kind of washed up on the rocks a little bit, often a place where you could go and get a job was a racetrack, right? Okay. Um, it had a fairly kind of low bar for entrance. <laughs> and so, yeah, he had spent Can you shovel manure? Yeah, that's right. Get he the got job a job. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, he had spent a lot of time at racetracks in the Midwest. He worked as an exercise rider. Okay. Um, but if you talked to him, he would have... Uh, basically said he was a professional gambler. That was his job. Professional gambler. Professional. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, they issued a warrant and it took them about a week, but again, the police didn't find him. He surrendered okay. after a week. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, basically when the heat gets turned up, yeah, he, he rolls over. Um, 
So he ended up going into the police, but the whole time protesting his innocence. Didn't do it, didn't do it, didn't do it. Um, posted $5,000 bail, immediately disappears. Okay. Yeah, so off he went. And so they go to his house, basically, or where his mom lives, to try and track him down. Um, she is interviewed by the FBI. And so she did admit that he was in possession of a large amount of cash around the time of the theft. Hmm. Um, but she denied that he would have ever had anything to do with this. And then she also did admit that he was in possession of a truck and a trailer at the time of the theft because he had been transporting a mare that was owned by her father from Kentucky to Illinois. So he does have kind of the means. Yeah. And yeah. Anyway, but again, he was protesting his innocence. She was denying that he had anything to do with it. Yeah. And he is now a fugitive. Mm -hmm. So many years passed. Um, he, they weren't able to find him. He even ended up on an episode of America's Most Wanted, the okay. TV show. Sure. Um, and then finally, August 1981, he's apprehended in Nashville. So by this time, he's been involved, not just in the horse theft, which, yeah, he still hasn't been um, sentenced for, but he was involved in a big tractor theft, like a multi-state tractor theft ring as well. So he's got the two things going on when they pick him up. Hmm. So it takes until June 1983 before he goes to court for the theft of Fanfreluche. And it was a three-day trial. 21 witnesses testify he is found guilty. Hmm. Um, he had already served some time because of his uh, tractor th- theft thing, though. So, um, and since it was never, uh, it was never proven. He would not admit it. But basically, they think because of the massive publicity that happened so immediately upon the kidnapping, he panicked and was out in the middle of nowhere and just like, we'll get this horse out of here. So, but, so that suggests to me that he did not mean to take her fa- specifically, fa- specifically yeah. that he just lured a horse, yeah. took one that looked appealing mm-hmm. and then immediately discovers, Oh my gosh, this is a really well-known horse. Yeah. I better, yeah. I better not be caught with it. Yeah. So like when you think, okay, his mom's dad had horses and had trailers, like he probably had a decent eye well, he for also horses. Rode, he rode, yeah. yeah, and he rode. So, yeah, he probably had a good eye for a horse, and he was able to pick a nice horse out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I kind of think maybe, yeah, he he chose, unfortunately, the wrong horse, very much the wrong horse. Would have been the right horse, but also the wrong horse for, <laughs> for him. For what low-level crime he was attempting, yeah. whatever it was. Yeah. So... Because what, what could he do with this horse? Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's I almost mean, like a crime of opportunity rather than even planned. Mm-hmm. I know he was there for three days, but it feels like he just sort of stumbled onto the scene. Yeah. And then decided, kind of decided off the top of his head, well, I'll just steal a broodmare. Mm-hmm. And then once he stole the broodmare, he's driving away and he's like, oh boy, what have I done? <laughs> yes, I guess that's why the prisons are full, because criminals, <laughs> maybe not always the smartest people. Okay. Uh, so he served his time and he ended up, yeah, getting released from prison. So okay. that's all done and dusted. Fair enough. But he did remain in the horse world. Hmm. Um continued he had his license as a trainer for a while i don't know how you can be a licensed trainer if you kidnap the most famous horse in the world but whatever some track was on his thing <laughs> recognizes the most famous horse in the world <laughs> yeah some track gave him a i got an eye for really good horses 
Yeah, but um, he also got involved um, in kind of low-level drug. He had a 1990 conviction for marijuana cultivation, and then back in the courts again, 1998, but this time he's age 51. Um, he's back in Kentucky at this point, working at Churchill Down, and he is picked up um, for and charged with six counts of racketeering and fraud uh, for trying to t- take gain to gain advantage in gambling. So what he's doing, this is horrible, but yeah. he was stuffing pieces of sponge, caught stuffing pieces of sponge into two horses' nostrils mm-hmm. so that they can't breathe. And so, yeah, horses, unlike uh, people who we can breathe out of our nose and out of our mouth, horses are obligatory nasal breathers. Okay. So they can only breathe through their nose. And then you put a horse onto the racetrack and expect it to run yeah. at 40 miles an hour. Um, it's going to need as much oxygen as it can yeah. and this guy has pretty much the, yeah. their main motive motive power is the o- oxygenated blood right so, and yeah. so yeah he's stuffed you know uh sponges in their their nostrils so that the horse can run for a short time and then it just peters out and mm-hmm. loses a weight race so mm-hmm. yeah basically trying to fix um things for gambling so um boo yeah, what a bad guy. So, anyway, in 1998, he disappeared. He has never been seen again, um, been missing ever since, and it has believed, it is believed that he was kind of silenced by his partners in that gambling ring. Sure, so, once he got caught, he was a yeah. liability. Yeah, so that was the end, or we assume that is the end of Mr. McCandless. So, that was the bad guy in this. And so Fan Freluche, what happened to her? Mm-hmm. Just a conclusion of our story. What happened to the victim? Yeah, what happened to our victim? So, I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing in the horse world is that you have this horse and it, it's so great and you love it so much. And then it gets stolen and you're lamenting its loss and blah, blah, blah. And then immediately you get it back and someone goes, oh, I'll pay you some good money for that horse. Sold. And so that's what happened. So, okay. yeah, Bert Firestone, who is also another well-known, uh, very rich horseman. I yeah. believe they're the Firestone Tire people. Um, so Bert Firestone ended up paying $1.3 million for her, hmm. um, which was a price that set a new world record for a broodmare. Uh, and so uh, she ended up going on after the birth of our mystery foal. Um, She went on to produce a foal for Mr. Firestone every year until 1990. So, unfortunately for him, of the 17 foals she produced in her lifetime, a couple of them were unraced, and the ones that he had hardly made any money at all. Hmm. So, yeah, she had... um, had those first five foals and they had won basically a quarter of a million each. Hmm. And then her next 12 foals only made a quarter of a million altogether. So he made his money back. No. He said a quarter, quarter of a million. Quarter of a million. He paid <clears throat> 1.3 million. And how many of them made a quarter of a million? 12 together. Oh, I thought you said them. that. I th- no, oh, the, the ones that were b- the, before, before he oh, bought I'm her. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. before he bought her. <clears throat> sorry, those mis- ones, yeah, that. those ones made a quarter of a million. And so Rene Levesque, or not Rene Levesque, Jean Louis Levesque yeah. would have been getting the breeder's bonus if they had breeder's bonuses back then. Yeah. But yeah, when Firestone owned her, then um, yeah, those foals only made a quarter of a million altogether. So hmm. 12 hmm. foals, quarter of a million. Yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, not, not too great. Not too great at all. <laughs> Although it, um, 
it's not necessarily as bad as it seems, but yeah. And then, uh, yeah, the 13th full was an unraced filly. So I said a couple of them were unraced. Um, and she was by Secretariat. When she went to the broodmare barn, she ended up having a colt called Holy Roman Emperor. I've even heard of that horse, even yeah. though I'm not involved in racehorses anymore. Yeah. He was champion two-year-old in France, and he went on to be a champion sire in Hong Kong and in Europe. And then you'll see him in the lineage of a lot of um, good racehorses nowadays as well. Hmm. And so, yeah, we've also, we also have um, a number of her foals have gone on to be good sires. So like we said, Medal de Or, he had a win, his foals had a win ratio of 77.8%, very, very high. Mm. Um, and then uh, the foal next to our mystery foal was called Decord, and he was also by Secretariat, and his foals had a win ratio of 77%, and they won $15 million altogether. So wow. yeah, he had a couple or she had a couple of foals who not only were good racehorses, but went on to be good stallions. But what happened to our mystery foal? Was he a good racehorse? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> so he oh, was the first boy. of the duds, unfortunately. <laughs> he did not run as a two-year-old, which sometimes is kind of a... A, a bit of a tell there, like if they don't run as a two-year-old. Sometimes people hold them back because they're too big or whatever. But um, yeah, I think people were like waiting with bated breath what's going to happen with this fool. And yeah. he just did not appear at the track. So he did not run as a two-year-old. And they said he had minor physical infirmities. That was what it was put down to, which hmm. could have been any number of things. Buck shins are a very common thing with young racehorses, but we don't know. It could have been a number of things. As a th three-year-old, he won his first race. So he's running down in Florida, which again tells us uh, they don't have him at the best tracks. Um, so he's down in Florida, um, but it was a super slow speed. So there was another race run the same day um, at the same length. So basically the track was the same. All the conditions were the same. The length of the race was the same. This race was one, um, like, our mystery fall, his his race was two full seconds slower hmm. so than the other race, if we want to compare um, the two together. And then uh, he went on to win his next race. So he won his first one. He won his second race. People are going, woo. But then he did not win or place or show. He was not in the money for any of the rest of his races for the rest of his three-year-old year. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he returned to the track as a four-year-old, won one more time. So basically, he ran for two years, 18 starts, three wins, and a third, and he made $34,000 total. Um, in 1989, he got sold to India as a stallion prospect, hmm. but I wasn't able to come up with, with um, anything from him beyond that. So yeah, I don't know whatever happened to him beyond that. But hopefully, he's sans Aesop, although probably... Uh... Yeah, hard to say. I know... Um, yeah, there's a famous horse that won the Kentucky Derby and then ended up getting sold to Japan and he ended up going for meat hmm. eventually. So, yeah, a little bit, yeah, of a sad thing. But Fan Frelouche, um, the good news for her is that she lived out her life to a ripe old age. She died in her 30s. Um, she was 32 years old when she died in 1999. Um, and she died at a place called Big Sink Farm in Midway, Kentucky. And she's buried there. So, yeah. 
she had a good life if you consider having babies every year. For 17 <laughs> years, a good life. <laughs> and getting kidnapped, but yeah, yeah, an exciting life anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's her job, I guess. So. Yeah. Yeah. Could be worse. Could be worse. She has no, she has no point of comparison. She's no. a horse. That's right. Okay. So that is the end of our story. So... So, uh, yeah, so that's the end of this, this story for this episode. Mm-hmm. But So next time, next time. what are we going to talk about next time? Dude? Next time, we're going to have an episode called Sleep Like a Horse. Oh. Mm. So uh, locking your knees uh-huh. with your uh, reciprocal ligaments. Yeah. Oh, okay. The reci- reciprocating apparatus. <laughs> Don't fall down, sleep standing up. Yeah. Okay. So that'll be next time. All right. Well, that's cool. All right, well, thanks for that story, dear. Okay, you're welcome. And I hope everyone out there enjoyed it. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can go to our website, which is called sneakydragon.com. There you will find this episode, and you're welcome to leave comments in the comment section underneath the episode. You can also find us on Facebook. We have a page called Horse Mysteries. You can find us there. You'll find the newest episodes posted there, and hopefully we can provide a little bit of background information for each of these mysteries. And I'd just like to say before we go, a big thank you to Chris Roberts, a listener who was kind enough to provide us with the music for Horse Mysteries. So we really appreciate Chris um, offering to do that and then actually uh, doing it. That's Those are two great things, so to offer it and then also to do it. It's really fantastic. So thanks very much for that. Uh, we will be back again in two weeks with another episode of Horse Mysteries. Mm -hmm. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.